I want you to look with me where we left last weekend to the 8th chapter of the book of John. I told you that I would finish this message today, the 8th chapter of the book of John. And um, I want to just catch up a little bit from last week. Um, we, were, we, we focused on five verses last week from uh, the, the latter few verses of 1 John 1, and then we moved into chapter 2 of the book of 1 John. And he basically says, it's human nature to deceive yourself on sin. And to say that you really don't have that big an issue. You're not really that bad. It's a, sin is a big problem. The evil people in the world, the sick and the mentally deranged, and those folks, that are they're the real ones that have potential for evil, not you. And John says, if you say you don't have sin, uh, you deceive yourself and you call God out to be a liar. So he says, I'm going to write these things so that you don't go on sinning or keep on sinning. But if you do sin... You have an advocate with the Father. And we spent our time talking about what is the advocacy Jesus representing us before the Father look like? What is, what is an advocate and what does that look like? And, and, and we invested our time in looking at the relationship of, a, of an attorney, a lawyer, to their client, especially a lawyer that has the power of attorney. A lawyer that has the power of attorney is the best modern day illustration of what an advocate is. If Jesus is an advocate, what is that? And, and, and a, an attorney represents you in court, and, uh, and, and, and for a time being, it's a very intimate relationship, and whatever the attorney wins, you win. Whatever the attorney loses, you lose. They are your advocate. Whatever they achieve, you achieve. Uh, and when we look at Jesus being our advocate, we understand a lot about our relationship with Him because when we confess Him as Lord, we come into a walk, we become a Christ follower, we are lost in Him through no effort of our own, but simply by the confession of our mouth and the surrendering of our lives to Jesus Christ, what He has achieved on our behalf, we achieve. He's achieved righteousness and we achieve righteousness through Him. We are lost in Him. He has won right standing before God and because he is our advocate and we are lost in him we now have right standing before God Jesus is our champion that's what advocate means champion defender intercessor he is our go-between our liaison and so if that is what he is what is he doing up there right now on my behalf and we learned last week we think that maybe he's up there just begging for mercy all the time God don't wipe them out they blew it again or he's up there begging for forgiveness all the time. But he's not just up there asking for mercy. He's not just up there asking for forgiveness. We understand that the Bible says in 1 John 1, 9, that God is faithful and just to forgive our sins. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. Not just faithful and merciful, not just faithful and loving, he is faithful and just. So our legal, spiritual advocate is representing us before God when he's the Lord of our life. And he is not there on our behalf simply saying, Lord, forgive him one more time or have mercy on him one more time. He is reminding the father what the law says. And the law says that there should be a payment for sin. But because he has already made payment for our sin, it would be unjust for God to require two payments for sin. And Jesus says, I am their advocate. They are lost in me. I represent them. My payment for sin has made them righteous. My righteousness has made them righteous. If I have right standing before you, they have right standing before you. That's what it means for him to be our advocate. And so we looked in this passage in John 8 as a biblical illustration of what it looked like in his day for him to be somebody's advocate. And uh, we just touched on it and we ended. So I want to look back there today. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, John 8, 1. Now early in the morning he came again into the temple and all the people came to him and sat down and taught them. Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. 
I mean, I, I just, you know, I'll say more about this in a minute, but I, what, kind of, what kind of religious leaders are laying wait and catch a woman in the act? You know, they, they are trying, this is a setup. They're not only setting this woman up, they're trying to set Jesus up. You see, they're trying, to, they're trying to find a way to catch him in an offense against the law of God. So this woman has become a pawn. And I want to know if the guy she was caught with was in on the plan. Because where is he in the accusation? Why is it just her? Why does he get off scot-free? Makes me think maybe he was part of the plan. Just to, I mean, I, don't, I, don't, I just think these men, these religious leaders, they condemn themselves in their own accusations. And be careful with that because that's what happens. Now Moses is, it, it, they said, now Moses, and they're, they're saying this to Jesus, we caught her in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? They said this testing him that they might have something of which to accuse him. Get your head around that word. Underline it. Highlight it. We're going to focus on that word accuse. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear them. He didn't say anything. He ignored them. So when they continued asking him. So they just kept berating him. Berating him. Berating him. He raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. This is the second time you find him down in the dirt. And then those who heard it, being convicted in their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus has raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. I've had this conversation with my kids over and over and again about school. I know that kids can be mean. Adolescent kids can bear the full brunt of the sin nature that is in all of us. And we have a pecking order. And we, when, when a group of kids get to destroying another kid's life, they do not let up. And, and I noticed that when I was in school and tried to go out of my way, especially after I came into relationship with Jesus. But even before I had an encounter with Jesus, I always had a heart for the disenfranchised. And so I've always told my kids, look, find that kid that's sitting beside themselves at lunch and, uh, and go sit beside them. Put your reputation on the line. Defend the kid that's always getting picked on. Defend the weaker vessel that's always being bullied. You take up for them. You defend them in their presence. And when they're being talked about behind their back, you defend the weak. Not only does it represent the heart of Christ, it says a lot about your character. Judah Smith is a pastor in Seattle, and uh, he's been a little more intentional with that conversation with his kids than I have mine. I've had it in one way or another with each of my three children that are spread out at different ages. But Judah has been a little more intentional. His kids are a lot younger than mine, but he has this scenario he goes through every day when he drops his kid off. One of his children is named Zion, his son. And when he drops Zion off for grade school, he says to him, Zion, we're Smiths. What does that mean? And Zion says back to him, we're kind, we're encouraging, and we look for lonely people. And in the early mornings, Zion says that back to Judah. Uh, He says it, we're kind, uh, we're encouraging, and we look for lonely people. 
So they say it together until Zion gets really excited about it. But when I heard Judah tell that about his family and his story, I thought he has encapsulated the conversation I have tried to have with my kids, been a lot more intentional, and I like it. So what, are, what if we said it this way? We are North Place Church. What does that mean? We are kind, we are encouraging, and we look for lonely people. Or you could say it as Christians. What if, what if we just simply said we're Christians? What does that mean? We're kind, we're encouraging, we look for lonely people. What if Christian people really live that way? What if the whole church was really kind, encouraging, and looked for lonely people? Do you know how many lonely people walk through the doors of this church today? Do you know how many lonely people are sitting in this room right now? now there's nothing on the outside that would ever tip you off on the surface everything seems to be fine they are surrounded by a sea of people but they are dying on the inside and they're here right now this morning they will be here in every one of our surfaces services these are the kinds of people that we live beside these are the kinds of people that work beside us in the cubicle next door these are the kind of people that God has called us to love that he has called us to serve and I'm convinced that the heart of our advocate is to seek these people out. Is it your heart? And is it really the heart of this church? Jesus asked this woman the question, where are your accusers? You know what I'd like to say to somebody like her in our day or somebody like her in many different ways, maybe not just an adulterous woman, but a lot of other people who are morally inadequate and who have blown it and are the kind of people in our world that become the, the, the brunt of all of our jokes. You know what I'd like to say to a woman like her in our culture to that question, where are your accusers? I would like to be able to tell her, not in this church, not in North Place Church. My hope is that we come, become a people and become a place that represents the spirit of our advocate, Christ Jesus, more than we represent the spirit of the accuser, Satan, our enemy. You look through the scriptures and you find Jesus when he's dealing with the disenfranchised, the broken, when he's dealing with those that have been cast out by the religious crowd, he always walks in grace, he always befriends them, he's always their advocate. But you look through the scripture and you find Satan every time you find him, whether it's in the first two chapters of the book of Job, whether it's in the book of Revelation, whether it's tempting Jesus, he is always an accuser. He is referred to as the accuser of the brethren. And I pray my heart, my family, the church I pastor more represents the love of Christ that is an advocate than the spirit of an accuser that comes from our enemy. Just recently, I was asked a pointed question by some very religious people in a public conversation. They, their question deeply disturbed me because it was accusatory in tone and it was laced with a lot of insinuations. I could tell the question they were asking me was was the result or had come from an earlier conversation that I had not been privy to, i.e. their gossip. They ask this question, doesn't so-and-so go to your church? And they said that it was leading, you could tell. It was a, an accusatory, and because I knew the person, and the person they asked about is a person of questionable character, um, I had a lot of stuff running through my mind before words started coming out of my mouth because I knew just about anything I said would be used against me and would be used against this church. Their insinuations were like this. If people like that are welcome at your church, then you must not be standing for truth. 
If people like that are welcome at your church, you must not be preaching the gospel. If people like that are welcome at your church, you must be soft on sin. If people like that are welcome in your church, you must be watering it down. And I'll have to admit, uh, you know, if I'm honest, I'm a little ashamed to admit that in that brief moment under that pressure, I wanted to say they only attend occasionally. I wanted to say they're not in leadership. I wanted to qualify my statements to lessen the sting of their accusations. But I mustered the courage to simply say, yes, they come. And once the ice was broken, words started coming out of my mouth. And I just went on a rant. And, I, 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 and it will, I'll paraphrase, but I said something like this. You see, at North Place Church, we have a conviction that says you can belong before you can believe. And you may belong for a while and, 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 and be loved for a while before you ever confess faith in Jesus Christ. Because we're convinced that unconditional love, love without ulterior motives, changes people's lives. And if these people know that we genuinely care about them, they will often stay around around long enough for the presence of God to change them. They will stay around long enough for us to build a relationship with them. And when they know we love them and genuinely care about them and we have a relationship with them, you earn the right to correct through relationship. A rebuke is only as strong as a relationship. Trust is earned through relationship. And if we earn the right for relationship, then through the Word of God, through the Holy Spirit of God, we can challenge areas in their life and let the word of God and the spirit of God do what the word of God and the spirit of God does. Look at the kind of people Jesus was always hanging around. They were the broken, the sinner, the disenfranchised, the outcast, the people of questionable character. I, and then I turned it back on them. I said, would the people that hang around Jesus all of the time, the people that Jesus was always seeking out, the people that Jesus would have built a church for, are those kinds of people welcome where you are? They, they changed the subject and went on to something else. Not because they admitted I won the argument, but they just thought I was a lost cause. Because they're righteous and they stand for righteousness and people like that don't feel comfortable in their church and they are proud of it. I think we're playing by the wrong scorecard. Gavin, my middle child, went home from ball practice the other day and he had a conversation with the kid. My email is on the email chain and so everybody winds up finding. I try to let my kids be normal but uh, they can tell and they start asking questions and word gets around and and so the, one of the kids asks, is your dad a pastor? Yes. Where? Uh, North Place Church. Do you? And then very next question you can tell is, these are young kids. So it comes from a, another conversation that they've heard somewhere else. And they ask the question, does, do, do, does your dad let homosexuals and lesbians come to your church? And it was a, I mean, this is from a little kid. You could tell he's, he's mimicking or words that he's heard somewhere else. And, 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 and Gavin was having this conversation with me because he's like, dad, did I answer it right? I said, well, what did you say? He said, I, I told them that my dad's never going to get up and condone a lifestyle that that is not biblical but he's going to love those people like he loves anybody else and our church is going to love those people like they love anybody else where else where can they go to hear the gospel and to be loved so yes I mean they can come to our church and he said dad did I answer it right I said yes you answered it just right we've been more focused on the judgment of God than we have the mercy of God and we have done our best to convince people to 
defile God by condemning them to a pit and eternal darkness and the hell and judgment for sin and all of that is real. But you cannot have intimacy with the God that you live your life afraid of. You can have intimacy with the God you're reverent toward, but not a relationship, a, a relationship based on fear is not a relationship that ever develops intimacy. That's why there are people in church every Sunday, they're going through the motions out of joyless compliance and dutiful obligation who don't have real intimacy with God because their relationship with God is driven by fear. They don't understand that he is their advocate, that he is pursuing, is he soft on sin? No, but he looked at her in the middle of her sin. She had just been caught and he said, woman, I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. He dealt with sin. He wasn't soft on sin, but not until she knew she was loved and he took a bullet for her. He was her advocate and in that moment, he earned the right to say, go and sin no more. He welcomes them with grace. Why can't we? The harshest words Jesus ever used in the New Testament were for religious people, not sinners. You brood of vipers was not said to a prostitute. You whitewashed sepulcher was not said to a liar and a cheat. It was said to Pharisees and religious people. When you see him interacting with what we, what the people that we write off, he is gracious, he is kind, he is welcoming to the point that he offended the religious and it ultimately got him crucified in his role of an advocate. The, the woman Jesus was defending here is not an upstanding woman. She is an adulteress. We often look at these stories like I told you last week and we take sides. I mean, we pick out the good guys and the bad guys and we think the religious scribes and Pharisees here are the bad guys and this woman is a victim. Listen, this woman is not a victim, okay? She's destroying somebody's family. She's wrecking somebody's marriage. She's tearing up somebody's house. She's destroying the lives of somebody's children. And this is the type of woman Jesus defends. The scribes and Pharisees are right on. Their quotations of the law are perfect. According to the law of Moses, this woman should be executed. They are right and they are wrong. You can be religiously right and in your spirit and your attitude be wrong at the same time. Religion's sneaky because you get to thinking I've done all the rules and fulfilled all the requirements. I'm righteous and then you have an us and them category because accusers like to classify. Accusers like to build themselves up based on position and as long as you've got a higher position than somebody else, it makes you feel good about yourself. It's easy to be accuser. It's average to be an accuser because all of us have had rocks in our hands at some point in our lives. I reminded you last week, you ever You ever heard a sermon and you got a list of people in your mind that need to hear that sermon? (laughs) Especially when it's on the gossip or the tongue or bitterness and forgiveness. You're like, I'm going to mail that one. I got 10 copies. I'm going to write a note and say, I love you, sister. I've heard, I was praying and heard this thought of you. Translation, you are vile. And I heard a word for you this morning. It's a spirit of an accuser. You ever been edified by somebody else's failure because it made you feel better about your own righteousness? I'm pretty bad, but at least I ain't like that. That's the spirit of an accuser. And before you know it, you got rocks 
in your hands. The definition of an accuser is to charge someone with an offense. An advocate is your champion, your intercessor, your defender. Jesus reveals the heart of God in this passage and he models what the heart of every church should be, what the heart of every believer should be. There are three things quickly I want to pull out. If you want to be an advocate instead of accuser, three things really quick I want to show you before we get into water baptism. The first is he was an advocate who was slow to speak. When they were accusing, he was silent. And it tells me that the heart of an advocate is slow to speak. A quiet, a Christ-like advocate does not have loose lips. In a culture of moral dilemmas and theological conundrums and cultural complexities, we are quick to pass judgment too quickly and we would do well if we would be quiet and just zip our lips and say less and pray more because the spirit of an accuser is silent. The spirit of an accuser or the spirit of an advocate is is slow to speak. The spirit of an accuser hurls accusations and remember this woman's accusers were condemning themselves in their own accusations Colossians 4 5 walk in wisdom towards those who are outside redeeming the time towards those who are outside let your speech always be with grace seasoned with salt that you may know how you ought to answer each one sometimes we get it backwards our speech is full of salt Seasoned with grace. But he says, let your speech be full of grace. Seasoned with truth and salt. Life is more enjoyable when you get off the judgment seat. When you resign your role as judge and jury of everything that goes on in the church or the lives of people who do and don't go, you have more fun and the Holy Spirit can start fixing what's wrong with you when you stop looking out your window at who you can throw rocks at. Notice the posture of the advocate. Not only is an advocate slow to speak, but the posture of the advocate preaches grace. In the majority of this story, he is down in the dirt. I I want you to look at the contrast. While they're standing, the pompous and the arrogant are standing in their accusations, Jesus spends the majority of this time stooping in the dirt. They are standing while he is stooping. He stoops for her and gets on her level. I want us to be a church that stoops for the broken. I want us to be a church that runs towards the messes. I want us to be a church that runs towards brokenness, not a church that stands pompous and proud in its arrogant accusations. Listen, I don't mind being the brunt of forked tongue Pharisees if, if the word on the street among the broken is North Place is a place you can go with your brokenness, with your mess, with your junk. That is a church full of of advocates, not accusers. I'll be the brunt of forked-tongued Pharisees every day as long as the word on the street is those people will love me into relationship with Jesus. The posture. He was slow to speak. He had the posture of an advocate. He wasn't ashamed to be associated with her. When he challenged the People to throw their first stone that were without sin. It convicted their conscience. Which tells me there's even hope for people that have rocks in their hands. So if I'm an accuser and you're an accuser, what Jesus said convicted their conscience and they dropped the rock. Dropped the rock. But then, when he made that point, if you're without sin, cast. 
if, if, you, if, you're, if you're without sin, but if you, if, if you are, go ahead, murder her, throw the rock, kill her. What he was trying to say is you're just like she is. We, we Accusers, promoters of positions, we have levels of lostness, but in God's eyes, there's no classification of sin. There's just lost and found. May God help us be a church in the dirt, not a church with rocks. Here's the last thing. Notice Jesus was not worried about guilt by association. He was slow to speak. His posture preached grace. And he wasn't worried about guilt by association. He wasn't ashamed of being associated with her. He wasn't worried about the religious folks who would, in the time of sharing prayer requests, say, pray for that rabbi over there who associates with that whore and people of ill repute. He wasn't worried about that. In our culture, there are catastrophes that happen all the time. Whether it's first responders that go running to those catastrophes, if it's a fire, if something blows up, if there's an accident, there are people who respond in human nature. And human nature is to run away from catastrophe, to run away from danger. But there are people in every one of their circumstances all the time, they are the few, but they, they go against logic, they go against human nature, and they run into the fire. They run into the brokenness, they run into the wreckage, they run into the plumage because they hear the cry of the broken and their heart fends off fear and it fends off logic because the welfare of other people are more important to them than their own safety. My prayer is in the cultural catastrophe that is happening right now, people are walking away from God or have never heard about God. May North Place Church be one of those churches that while human nature among church people is to run away from those kinds of people or to run away from that kind of life, we run to the mess, we run to the brokenness, we run to the cry of despair and share with them the only love and the only hope that will change their life now and for all of eternity. Jesus didn't avoid the sin issue. He dealt with the sin issue, but after he demonstrated his deep love for her, he earned the right to correct her and say, okay, ma'am, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And she was empowered to live a changed life because she met grace Not a rule, set of rules, not do's and don'ts, not customs, not traditions, not legalism, not law. She met the giver of life. And when she met him and understood the depth that he went on her behalf, her life to live for him, holiness was a life of worship that was being offered to him out of love and intimacy, not fear of what was impending in the future. I'm going to pray. And while I pray, if you're serious about this, I want you to commit your life to Jesus. Confess Him as Lord. Admit you've sinned. And admit that His grace is greater than all your sin. Father, today I pray over this congregation of people. There are people under the sound of my voice that need to run to their advocate. They need to be lost in their defender, in their champion. And today as they confess, they confess, they believe that Jesus is Lord. They believe the tomb is empty in their hearts today. As they declare, I recognize that I am a sinner and in need of grace. And I recognize today that the grace of God is greater than all of my sin. As they confess today that this is the first day of the rest of their life. A new beginning. I pray that the Holy Spirit would do what no man can do. Change their lives. Write their name in the Lamb's book of life. Father, I pray that you will change every one of us today. Whether we're new or whether we've been serving you for generations as a family, change us today. 
Lord, will you bless them and keep them? Will you make your face shine down upon them? Will you be gracious to them and turn your countenance their direction? In Jesus' name, amen. The altars are open. The environment will remain worshipful. God bless you. We love you.